Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know what the name is. that type of like, bizarros if they were in another comic, but it's just the way he draws people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leave this on the. There's a little desk just inside the door at the bottom of the stairs. Uh-huh. I'll, just leave, I'll just leave it on there because I realized if I put it in my mailbox, though. Roman, I can only hear about a third of what you're saying. So, yeah, I'll leave it on there. And your image uh-huh. is frozen. frozen. And oh. when I when talk, I... it's melting down. I don't know if this is going to work right now, buddy. did an intro for the perfectly accessible podcast welcome to batman in quarantine episode 48 this is going to be batman and robin number 14 we're in this horrific psychedelic nightmare hellscape that fraser irving has created for us uh with with a little help from grant morrison and uh it is it is a it is a buck wild issue um although i will add that i think about eight eight of the 22 or whatever pages are sort of rooted around just building tension. You know, we get several pages of not much dialogue, Batman fighting Dolatrons waiting for a thing about to blow up. So Dolatrons, Dolatrons. Roman is my special, special Dolatron friend. He, he, he wears the, the mask, the wig for me. He, it's just an adorable (laughs) thing. I, I love that you always been so supportive of being my Dolatron. (laughs) <laughs> um i can't remember what a dolatron says <laughs> um pff, who knows crack i want crack yeah. or whatever they whatever they uh gosh yeah um so yeah in this issue we get damien talking to the joker we get damien getting joker toxin we get to see mr pig our good old friend mr pig it's never a mr pig issue unless roman's here as well um and then we get a uh, big old explosion, Gordon getting kidnapped, Damien, or sorry, Dick not getting kidnapped, strangely, getting uh, brought back to health and then going to take down, well, at least attempting to go take down the old pigman. And we get a lot of, a lot of forward movement with the contagious drug addiction and uh, the Joker as well. Roman, how'd you feel about this one? This was a disturbing one. It uh, was disturbing. <laughs> I mean, I, I liked it, but yeah, it was, uh, oof, boy. Um, it, I think, and I'm trying to remember, I read it last night, and I I think there was something that confused me, and I don't remember what it was. I'm trying to find it now. <laughs> it was a fantastic issue, and I love the Fraser Irving art in it. I think that it it had a bit more in my mind to do with, like, creating atmosphere or, like, you know, this is less the bones of the story, but maybe more of like the muscles of the story, like, you know, providing structure around it. I don't, I mean, there weren't any huge revelations with this. It's interesting to go from the return of Bruce Wayne issues to these Batman and Robin issues. Cause there's so much to mine in the return of Bruce Wayne issues. And while these are fantastic issues, they're sort of progressing the plot forward 
um, and, and doing a little less of like the mystery legacy building that the return of Bruce Wayne is doing. So, you know, I'm loving this issue. Don't have a huge amount to say about it. So we'll take care of an email and then we'll make sure everybody's able to get to where they're going on time today. But yeah, I am excited to pick it apart with you. Cool. Yeah. I, you know, and I'm curious, um, I've never looked this up, but I'm glad that in the comics that they do the thing with the grandfather clock where they move the hands to a certain time and that that's what opens the secret panel or whatever. And I always thought that came from the TV show, but I don't know, maybe it came from the comics before the TV show. Well, it's a good thing we've got a Chris Murphy on board because he will yeah. probably know. But yeah, in, in my looking into this issue, I did see somebody else mention, you know, 1047 is the time that his parents died and they go into that. But it, it oh. specifically said, we don't know, I don't know, the first incarnation of that being used. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine it's from the show then because the show never got serious enough to mention like his parents' death. <laughs> I, you know, I've never really watched the show, but I think that that's fascinating that it didn't really ever cover his parents' death. Not that I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I saw every episode, but not that, that I remember. I don't, the episodes I saw, they've never mentioned like his origin. He's just huh. bad. <laughs> they don't go into any tragedy or anything. Gosh, I wonder if that's just sort of like an evolution of the times, like definitely in the 80s and like the Frank Miller, Alan Moore post dark world is like that grim part is so much a part of kind of everything, all Batman stories. But even in like the 60s and 70s, like the Neil Adams stuff, like is yeah. was that a huge, hugely mentioned thing? It started to be again because, yeah, I think it was <clears throat> Denny O'Neill who brought back the uh the golden age grim avenger of the night thing but yeah the hmm. tv show was just totally like pop pop culture and bright and zany and that's so bizarre it's just not having been around at that time to think that like you could be telling batman stories without making them hinge so much upon the vengeance yeah. thing yeah there wasn't even anything about fear and being a creature of the night i mean maybe maybe adam west said the line or something but there was any there wasn't anything fearful about him well yeah exactly that costume and that beer belly weren't exactly things <laughs> that like necessarily s struck fear into the hearts of cowards you know at yeah. night. um i did thought think so we've been kind of discussing the prevalence of this horse head right above the three roses and the roses are like the constellation of orion's belt but somebody spelled it out real well which is like the horse head there um is the Orion's Horsehead Nebula. It could be a reference to the Orion's Horsehead Nebula. And then oh. the three roses beneath it being Orion's belt and both of those tying into Orion, the hunter of Darkseid, Batman being the hunter of Darkseid throughout all of this. I just don't really remember seeing that horse head on display and other things. I wonder if it was or if that you know is specifically here for um, you know to tie that Orion metaphor as a through line through the issues. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a good question. I like all I like all those links, but yeah, I don't remember the horse head elsewhere either. It also strikes me it's very much carved like a a, a chess piece, a knight. Oh, a knight! Oh, the dark. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the conversations I've read, like Rich Johnston from Bleeding Cool, um, around the time this was coming out made a big article about Grant Morrison's use of game theory throughout all of this. I don't really know much about game theory as an idea, but 
the through line of dominoes throughout all of this, the night there, and then the chess pieces, like, you know, the in the black or the actual RIP arc, I think there's mentions of like chess pieces, but Dr. Hurt was using the Joker as a pawn, and then ultimately the Joker exist you know existed above and outside of the game because it ended up being the problem within it this then also having this like game theory of chess and there are in this issue and in the following issue like direct verbal references to like chess and pawns and games and checkmate and i can't remember if it's this issue or the next one where they say like even a pawn can be the most dangerous chess piece so oh yeah yeah I i don't know like the Somebody more in, interested in game theory and the possible uh, scaffolding of game theory throughout this run might be able to tell us a bit more about that. But Wow. Wow, we need to have Mike Watney on as a guest because I bet he knows about game theory. <laughs> Mike Watney, one of the, the accountant for the comic shop, also a huge game head, yeah. um, also does an amazing podcast about music called Raccoon Radio that oh, everyone yeah. should check out. But anyway, so this this after we get that gorgeous shot of Alfred in the you know setting the clock, I just Fraser Irving, even that very first panel in this issue, um, the way that his skin like it's not rolls but sags and the shadows, Fraser Irving just makes things look like a nightmare in the best possible way. I, I just. We're back at it. Internets are melting down. It's we're gonna try and get in, get into this thing, and then really pack pack meaning into it, and then pack out like a good camper would. The conversation between Damien and the Joker is is really interesting. Just like how easily the Joker is able to wrap Damien around his finger. I think it's a weird juxtaposition with just the really kind of cool dynamic they've had in the issues leading up to this when he's Oberyn, and then he took that mask off, and he's just suddenly bad boy again yeah it's amazing how quickly he uh you're like wow it makes me wonder how did how did he did he maintain like his like a mask of normalcy when he was oberon because oberon seems so not (laughs) joker-esque yeah you're right and there's even just to me it feels like you know he went through a metamorphosis to be you know that has been a through line to this morrison run the the clown and midnight metamorphosis Mm -hmm. he went through one you know in r.i.p and then he kind of became Oberyn in my mind. It's like kind of he reinvented himself. We didn't really see that reinvention. Um, but we also didn't see the reinvention, you know, sort of going from Oberyn back to this character that he yeah. is now. So I wonder if, you know, in the writing, he was using it to be, you know, like this is a metamorphosis that he's gone through, or was he acting throughout all of that? Um, obviously he was acting, but uh, in some regard, but you know, is there a metamorphosis, so to speak, that took place between the Oberyn and now this guy? Mm. Yeah, you know, and I really, just these panels, these first panels with Damien and Joker, just the position Joker's in, because Damien's hit him, totally because you were saying metamorphosis reminds me of Kafka's metamorphosis, and, you know, when he's when he's curled up on the bed and later on on the floor as the cockroach and, like, cowering and everything's like, wow, yeah, and and then he comes to accept his metamorphosis. And that's kind of what's going on here with the Joker in a way. I've never read that. Kafka. It, uh, it's, it's good. I've actually only read. No, I think I read The Trial also. But Metamorphosis is really good. You know that, the, you know, the, the dilemma of like, you know, 
if you know there's the person only tells lies and that doesn't tell lies and how do you find out which one is which or, or whatever. the dangerous nature of i guess well just humanity and can you trust people but like this damien saying everything you say is a lie or a trick batman told me and the joker says so what what if i'm telling the truth this time and just like either everything the joker says is a lie or sometimes it's not a lie I, just this this idea of like trying to trust him and then that being in the hands of a 10 year old like is <laughs> you know it, batman couldn't even do it i don't think and then we have damien is just like well i'm just gonna beat you to death with a crowbar i think <laughs> which is you know he's goading him into doing it but it's it's a pretty glorious scene in the bottom right hand panel of that double page spread where he's just like the joker is just smiling but the blood is running all over his face and hands is just you know some of the best joker art i've ever seen yeah yeah and it's pretty amazing that he's got some kind of i guess the power of madness because you know how is he able to i mean damien's been hitting him pretty hard and he's that's just true like, and i and i love that reveal too because it made me look back in the art um to see to see that joker said something about oh it's hard to get your you know your nails and your and your eyeshadow to match and you're like wait why do you say that oh He's got poison on his nails. When did he cut Damien? And yeah, he did earlier, but you didn't notice because of the dialogue. That guy's always got some nice nail polish on. What what page is it that he cuts Damien? It's actually just two panels before that, when he's pretending to be when he's blinded supposedly, and he lunges forward and Damien blocks him with the crowbar to the chest. Okay. Um, oh, right on his face. Yeah, there's just a tiny little little under his eye. Yeah. Yeah, a little splatter of blood, and that in the next panel you see the cut under his eye. Good catch. I love again the Fraser Irving stuff just across the board, but this next page where it's the long vertical panel that's thin <laughs> and it's divided into two, and on the left side it's Damien's normal face, on the right side he's like broken the Joker smile. I love yeah. when you take a you know kind of reminiscent of the nine panel grid though you take a, an image and then you break it up the, the paneling but keep the the background motif the same and i love just like holding my hand over one side of it and be like he looks normal there oh he looks fucked up there like just a, a cool progression of time that you really can only do in comics yeah yeah it's very well done and then that third wider panel with the his view of the joker as the poison's taking effect that is terrifying yeah that's like you were just the other day talking about how much acid you used to do and that's probably like yeah. what it was like when you were seeing all that acid yeah 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 it's a bad trip everybody looks like a crazy joker <laughs> is that you god <laughs> i love that he falls back just like a brick of wood like his whole brick, a brick of wood but you know like he's just like stiff as a board falls backwards and he's like arching and he's got this horrible smile like it really i i'm i would love to hear some insight from people who don't love this art or just find it really off-putting it's hard for me to really remember my first time with it because i was like this is unlike anything and i do remember there were parts of it that i was like i don't you know I w it was off-putting how like kind of flat all of the colors and shading looks but at the same uh -huh. time it's so unique I and mean, i love it now i'm just curious yeah how do you i mean how do you feel about his art you are very well versed in all types of comic art this is very much like in that auteur school of like i'm doing whatever i want and i'm not going to try and fit into anybody else's you know mold yeah I, I like it i like it a lot and i think i don't remember what the first thing i saw his work on maybe it was this but um i like it a lot because it is and i i don't remember my terms well enough but it is very very painterly and kind of a, a um um 
art with a capital A, kind of the painters and all their different techniques. I, I, like it might be pointillism he uses in the background of those panels, maybe. Like um, Sienkiewicz, like it's similar to like Sienkiewicz and like, yeah, I don't yeah, know, just incorporating. School. Yeah, incorporating other techniques and, and things that you didn't usually see in comics. I love, and I was listening to an interview with Bill Sienkiewicz and he was just sort of like, yeah, I was raised, you know, doing fine art and loving comics, but I was always just trying to ask the question of like, why can't comics be doing fine progressive art as well? Yeah. And, and, you know, he always described himself as feeling like he was on an island when he, you know, before and during the, that New Mutants era. And mm. I think he you know he's one of my favorite artists one of Django's favorite artists i know you love him it, it i really do think he paved the way for art like this to be allowed to be in comics not that things should or shouldn't be allowed to exist but i think without bill sinkevich you wouldn't yeah. have seen people like fraser irving oh yeah definitely i i still remember like his moon knight series that blew me away because it was the first time you saw an artist really doing that like in every issue yeah, um, i haven't read that moon knight run i need to it's it's good it's still one of my favorite moon night runs yeah it's funny i reading this last night when damien fell over I, at first i was like what the heck what <laughs> why is why is he like bent over like that is he falling and this just is but or is he actually rigid like that and then like late the next page you see oh no he's actually kind of stuck in that position rigor mortis like stuff <laughs> yeah on that next page we get the most roman page that there was could have been uh the <laughs> barbed wire wrapped pig to his oh. wire mother i know uh justin wishes he could be here and he would have loved that page as well yeah yeah getting into the whole i always forget his name that whole the the psychologist that did those experiments in the yeah 50, was it the 50s yeah you brought it up before yeah i um, wanted to get, say milgram but I, that might be the prison one yeah it wasn't milgram um yeah. he had like an alliterative name yeah like yeah. Henry, henry h something but um i love this yeah getting back to that with pig with his with his all of fucked that okay so complex? yeah his fucked up mommy complex that yeah he um he wasn't nurtured by a mother when he was a kid and now he's a psych psycho <laughs> also him hanging upside down harkens back to that scene in 666 which he dies upside down um he's the person who oh, dies right. at the beginning of 666 but he's not wearing his pig outfit or anything um but he's here he is hanging upside down getting dead and yeah. be below it we get dr hurt holding the bat box so he's reunited with this bat box again i like that this issue came after batman and robin number four because we know from that issue that Thomas Wayne has encountered this box before. And he furthermore knows that it can't be opened. And if you force it open, it destroys the contents inside. Yeah. That's a, that whole connection and his awareness of this box isn't a thing that I registered at all beforehand. And now, you no. know, knowing that Thomas Wayne is from those 1800 times, uh, I just, that that's an instance of like, I don't remember exactly the times and publication history of these things as they came out, but this omnibus works really, really well to have them uh, read in lockstep like this. It, yeah, it really does. Cause yeah, I know when I was reading the issues as they came out, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get things like that. <laughs> yeah. I really like the, just the composition of the following page where it would be a nine panel grid, except for, you know, panels two, three, five, six, eight, and nine are all bound. So it's actually just a six panel grid, but all of the left panels are upside down pig head. And then all of the larger right hand panels are Dr. Hurt discussing with him, but 
just I love you know that type of uh, through line art you know visual motifs on a singular page and that dude shot that pumpkin and that pumpkin looks like a brain <laughs> yep sure does yeah at first I I was staring into the the gunshot in the pumpkin because I was staring into it going wait is that are we seeing pigs like face through there is that pig's teeth but no mm-hmm. it's just like pumpkin seeds and goo i think it's seeding you know that now <laughs> pumpkin seed pun there you go <laughs> but uh in the first issue of this arc we see you know dr hurt shooting dick grayson in the back of the head and it says three days earlier and where this mm. whole arc is moving up to that moment but he's just getting horky like a pig for shooting this pumpkin uh he's ready to shoot a brain it looks like <laughs> So then we get this gorgeous several-page scene of Gordon and Dick who have been shot down in the Batmobile, flying Batmobile, by the 99 Fiends, and they're getting ganged up on by the Dolatrons. I think it's a gorgeous scene, and I think that it does a great job of ratcheting up tension because the Batmobile is going to explode if there's not a voice activation, but Dick has passed out, so Gordon's trying to wake him up. It is, you know, five pages of of just a really pretty fight scene and the colors are gorgeous and it it does raise tension, but you know, when these things are coming out once a month and you're like horny for answers, (laughs) it, I was like, okay, five pages. Like this is a fourth or fifth of the book. I would love show me hurt in that box some more. Yeah. Even, even reading this last night, I I went through this sequence too quickly because I was like, come on, come on. I want to get back to hurt. Yeah. And I had to slow down and go back and go, no, look at how beautifully this is done and the colors. It's all in kind of reds and oranges when a gunshot goes off, but it's mostly pinks and reds, which I, which I think are, are the lighting from both the fire from the Batmobile and the, the red uh, windshield of the Batmobile. And actually you know just the color motif there didn't think about it but the sky is teal and all the clowns are pink and and like this teal pink orange it really leans to that like pop color sensibility that he was trying to evoke on all the covers for this run you know like the yellow being a not successful color for and then there's a lot of like he just describes using like pop colors you know throughout all the covers and now that you mention it this whole scene is just like very pop colory yeah, yeah. I, I and, and, sorry, and great. Yeah. Oh, and great tension just because when with the the Batmobile doing its countdown and and at first it the Batman when he, he starts yelling at it to stop the countdown and at first it doesn't react. It never reacts. Oh, it never reacts. That's right. It explodes. It blows up. I'm like Bruce and Dick. You got to build a better Batmobile. <laughs> they should name an issue yeah. that. Yeah, build a better Batmobile too. Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, not super impressed with the Wayne bat tech there. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to assume it was damaged in the crash, oh, maybe, okay. I guess. Um, but why? I just assumed he wasn't close enough so it didn't hear him, and I was like, you need a better microphone. Yeah, I was also wondering, is it not reacting to him because of the crash and because it's not Bruce Wayne's voice, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. Dick's voice? Mm-hmm. They forget to recalibrate it? Alfred forgot. No, Alfred wouldn't forget to recalibrate it. Well, why does it say day two after the explosion? Because we know that day, like three days go by before the gunshot happens and then, you know, last issue. Okay. So they're doing the passage of time. It is a kind of weird motif because... So so the, this scene, all the Dolatrons kidnap Gordon 
and we have to assume that they don't kidnap Dick because Dick wakes up with Alfred and Gordon wakes up with Pig and Hurt. But yeah, so I guess that, you know, a night has passed now. But yeah, so that explosion happens in the middle of the night and now we're on to the next day moving towards this several day arc that we're living in. But yeah, it's a weird jump. I love this next sequence just because it's the dialogue is great, but with Hurt and Pig and and pig injecting Botox into his, below his eye. But then later on, injecting PCP, because I just love that exchange. The doctor heard saying, more Botox and not Botox, not for work. For work is P- P- PCP. Yeah. And just like his like <laughs> and, and all the watermelons. It, well, that, I was going to say, what the fuck is going on with these watermelons? Like from the right to the left, <laughs> they are progressively more damaged. I'm like, is he just still taking more shots at watermelons but those first several ones don't look like they've had bullet holes in them what is going on with the melons yeah yeah that's what i was like is he like practicing his shooting on watermelons <laughs> does he just hate gourds yeah <laughs> anything with a hard exterior and a juicy inside <laughs> yeah yeah this that panel would make Django cry yeah i know that man <laughs> loves walter melons i've never seen anybody love watermelons watermelons so much you should see his belly when it's full of walter melon <laughs> his pain is like a fine wine i'm perfect so much more than human like that dialogue is so crazy and his like injecting botox right beneath his his like eye sags but what yeah. i love is pig saying all the top actresses squirt the germ under their skin and handsome men on television too and there's been especially like earlier in the run like definitely instances of morrison taking pot shots at celebrity culture and i'm Mm -hmm. super into that because it is just a damaging thing like i think especially as this run was coming out 10 years ago or so like and probably the 10 years leading up to it celebrities getting botox it's still super common but treating like Botox like it's a germ, like a bacteria or a contagion, this contagious thing that all celebrities do to feel pretty. And like just using the word germ to describe it, I think is a really interesting uh, way to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And and yeah, I'm likening it to the, to that, the terrible like addiction thing, germ that they're spreading around that hurt. Right. Pig are spreading around. And I, you know, it, it'll come up here in a bit but yeah that the contagious so yeah dick gets a hold he tries to get a hold of robin and instead hears from the joker because the joker has robin and he's you know saying like oh now you guys are working for me this is the best gag ever so he's like okay well what do i have to do dick is this is the bottom of dick you know he's fucked up here like gordon's fucked up gotham's going down robin's with the joker he needs the joker's help like this is you know, Dick bottoming out and, you know, him having to say, all right, what do I do to the Joker is a pretty powerful statement. But the fact that he's saying they're throwing a party for us at Crime Alley and they've got Gordon, I've arranged the catering, you bring the fireworks. And then that follows up with, in the Gordon scene, we've got, I just, I love the perspective shot of looking down (laughs) at Gordon with like the, you have to look at it. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen the panel, but Gordon in front of this, whole room of people but it looks like this distorted scene um yeah i i yeah like he's on i was like was he strapped to the side of an an, like an arc like noah's arc what is that thing a hot air balloon or something (laughs) yeah (laughs) and then the scene of dr hurt on the following page speaking to the whole group but on the left side of the panel is the front of him back with like the his mask shadow casting a devil horn and the other half of him is the back forward like just (laughs) masterful composition yeah yeah that's so cool but the follow-up to that statement of 
the Joker saying, I've handled the catering, is that this giant group that is about to watch Pig fuck up Gordon, they've got popcorn, and this guy starts eating popcorn, and then he finds a domino in it, you know, furthering the Joker is the domino killer, because then they all start bursting out with Joker toxin in this room. So now... So now, whereas Dr. Hurt and Pig thought they were in control of this situation, now they're like, oh, beans. The Joker's doing all of our, like, <laughs> fucking up our plans. I, I, see, I just love the image now of <laughs> both of them exclaiming, oh, beans. That's <laughs> my favorite explanation. <laughs> yeah. the, the disturbing nature of the addiction, the contagious addiction, is really, I think, brought to the forefront here when Dick is trying to, in another, like, four or five page ultimately just battle scene um dick is trying to free gordon he's like don't untie me and he's like why and then as soon as he gets untied he beats him over the head with a fire extinguisher so that he can get more of the drug that he needs and i forget what i was just reading the other day but like people talking about addiction you know like addiction is saying with every degree of certainty in your head that you're never going to do this thing again while you are simultaneously walking out the door to go to your dealer to get more of it like this mm. you know as people who are not you and i are not super addicted to a physical substance like heroin or something so we can't yeah. relate but that nightmarish world of thinking in your head that you're getting you're being the person that you want to be while being totally trapped in a behavioral pattern is super terrifying to me you know that's like been one of my largest fears my whole life i grew up like with my mom and aa so i was always like very afraid of the looming shadow that is addiction yeah uh as uh as they realize hurt and pig realizes the joker it's the joker and then pig says not joker i smell batman and then there's a shot of the flying batmobile over a sign that says park row i read that as pork row and then I had to realize it was Park Row, but I was like, whoa, Professor Pig, Pork Row, what a funny... Th oh, wait, never mind, I'm dumb. Uh, that's what you should call its headquarters, though. Yeah, Pork Row, gosh. Um, okay, okay, so Gordon takes down the Batman, which is really disturbing, again, just the heart of addiction and what it does and why this idea of contagious addiction is really uh, is fucked up. And then we yeah. end the issue and the, with... And the whole time you know, during that little sequence... You know, Gordon is still saying, I tried to warn you. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that thing of like on an on an analytical level, you can think that yeah. you're overcoming this thing, but you're no, you're still just trapped in this. Yeah, it's, I think that that really does convey that horrible, horrible predicament really well. And then we end up in the Batcave with Joker. We can tell it's the Batcave because it's got the giant Joker card and we've got a new giant warhead it looks like and Damien's hanging upside down with a smile painted on it. And I just love the Joker character design when he's in the Oberyn section outfit with the glasses without the mask on. So he's got the top hat and the red glasses yeah. and the felt black outfit. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I love, you know, how he's got this warhead that's, and he painted on it. Have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the last, and we always love these, the next in Batman and Robin, the three panels. But I just love, it's just close-ups of the right eye of, of Batman, Joker, and Hurt. And to see the like line work and all three of those things, it's so like extraneous and weird and like I you know, I love it. Like all the veins in Joker's face. It's not like classic fine art. It's like just weird, almost like pollocky lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, and just that. the I love the contrast between 
Batman and Joker or Batman and uh, Hertz, the similarity between Batman and Hertz mask and their eyes and then the, the Joker is just totally unmasked and revealed apparently. <laughs> yeah. Probably looking forward to getting some more watermelons. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, we lost a bunch of time to that crazy internet stuff that happened trying to keep this world oh. of ours together. But I would like to read a couple emails before we get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's get this. We got a good one from Judd here. Um, and this is from just a couple days ago. Dudes, I think I noticed something and my head is kind of spinning. <laughs> in Batman and Robin number 10, we get a look at the Wayne family patriarchs. Among those, just past Joshua, the guy with the casket, is one whose name is obscured. A few pages later, we see that his name is Solomon Wayne. Now flash forward or backward or whatever, time is weird, to Return <laughs> of Bruce Wayne number 3. After the Black Bear thing, the Jack and Jack Valor makes the trip to the Van Derms to deliver the papers and notes that Bruce had instructed him to. He hears the bells on the way back, which is cool, but a different thing. Anyway, in the next scene, we see the mansion. I'm assuming that this is the Van Derm and later Wayne mansion across from Bristol Bay where the hyperfauna showed up and where the caves are. As they approach, one of the guys says that the place is the site of where Judge Solomon's brother died and has a reputation for being haunted. Now, from Seven Soldiers, we know a little about how Grundy men work, right? They come from the lost colony of Limbo Town and are essentially the raised dead folks. Once they're buried, they get to sleep, in a, while, sleep a while and then are brought back to life by the witch men of Limbo Town, who coincidentally look a lot like the Miyagani, or at least Clarion did. Limbo Town's also a totally subterranean colony, right? It exists only below ground and only accesses blue rafters, the outside world, to barter but it does so by means of a long and winding trail of caves, caves much like those found at Bristol Rock and under Wayne Manor. So what if Judge Solomon's brother, an unnamed Wayne, fell into the caves at some point? He's lying, dead and gone, only to be found to be by a traveling witch man and resurrected into a Grundy man. Thus, Solomon Grundy could be Bruce Wayne's great-great-great-great-great-uncle. The big flaw with that is that when you refer to Judge Whoever, it's generally their last name. And if it is a first name thing, why would the Grundy men take Solomon's name instead of his own? Maybe Grant's implying that at some point, something happens to Solomon too, and he ends up becoming a Grundy man. Or maybe the Solomon family was in the area around the same time, and the Solomon Wayne, Judge Solomon thing is just a coincidence. If that's the case, he's probably not a Wayne, but I'm feeling pretty good that Judge Solomon's dead brother is actually Solomon Grundy. I loved this issue. Um... <laughs> Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's what I love about stories and great stories and things that don't make a plot super easy to you. Like whether that's right or wrong is not the point. The thing is somebody was reading <laughs> this comic and started getting their wires crossed and making connections. And all of a sudden, you know, when you have a rich comic history, that's the most fun I think is when something inspires you to start making connections and building your own story. And yeah. that's, you know, I think he, Morrison really empowers people to be story builders themselves. Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful thing. And, and, you know, whether it works or not, I don't really care. I just mean either idea. <laughs> I, I love the idea that Solomon Grundy could be somehow related to the Batman lineage. That is cool. It's so cool. And it, <laughs> you know, he's always in the subterranean. I haven't read that Clarion story or know much about, you know, Solomon Grundy as a character, but that, that is such an awesome connection. So Judd, anytime you or anyone gets jacked up about an idea like that, it's never wrong. It's just yeah. fun. So yeah. keep it up. And <laughs> anyone can always write us at batmaninquarantine at gmail.com. That's in spelled out, I-N. 
Um, and then we've got a general comment from the, the friend of the show, the weapon master himself, <laughs> Andrew Carlson. He says, you know, I just realized that each of the Return of Bruce Wayne issues is around 34 pages, while each Batman and Robin issue is around 26. I think it's really interesting that Morrison is able to dedicate eight more pages per issue in Return of Bruce Wayne than Batman and Robin. However, I feel that in each of these issues, those eight pages are used very effectively in that I think Morrison purposely allows each artist room to interpret and set the scene to really help the readers set in stone where they are and what kind of genre setting this issue will be. They seem to be more wordless panels and the slightly emotional, morose return of Bruce Wayne than in the heavily story action driven Batman and Robin. What do you guys think? Anyways, you are all fantastic people. And so is this podcast. And that includes every other person writing in. I love Judd's idea. I'd love to see some of the crazy cool references everyone else knows and their tales experiences. It's so damn fun. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So, you know, within comics, it's pretty common that you get uh, regular issues that are anywhere from 20 to 24 pages as a standard. And then you get prestige issues, which generally are like 30 to 32 and have a spine. And then there's just oversized issues, which are, you know, 28 to 30 pages. They usually are like a dollar more. That's how Return of Bruce Wayne was. I wonder, I wonder exactly what, you know, if Morrison was just like, no, I need eight more pages per issue to get this story out there. But I do agree with Andrew, especially like in issue number two, Return of Bruce Wayne with the Fraser Irving art and the atmosphere in the woods. Like it, it really does build atmosphere. I think that those issues are, are blessed by that extra eight pages. And I think if they didn't have that, Morrison could still get it done. But I think you'd hear even more complaints from people about how assumptions need to be made, jumps need to be made. And I think Morrison, when allowed to let things breathe, really does take advantage of that. And I think a lot of the perceived shortcomings of Morrison are him trying to pack a lot of ideas into small page count issues. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with all of that. And I absolutely right. I don't know if it's consciously like I want these extra panels to make sure these artists can build atmosphere. But I think that when you're not so hyper focused on like, well, I have this story, it needs to go into 22 pages. So this page is this and then that page has six. Like when you're not so bound by rule, atmosphere allowed is allowed to to take take front. Yeah. Um, Roman, you're a goddamn saint. You put your glasses on. I can see you're ready to go (laughs) get to work. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and I'm going to swing by your house in about 15 or 20 minutes and pick up a jeweler's microscope or a magnifying glass. So yeah, whatever this thing is, it's not a loop lens. I forget. Yeah. Jeweler's magnifier. Yeah. But we'll be back on Monday with return of Bruce Wayne. Number five. We're like four or five episodes away from being done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I I was just going to make a dumb joke about we'll return with return of Bruce Wayne. We'll return uh, <laughs> with Bruce Wayne. <laughs> we're only, yeah, we're only a few issues from the end of this and the beginning of Batman Inc. Yep. Yep. I think, I think between the ink and this volume, what I would really like to do is uh, watch Grant Morrison's talking with gods. Ah. I've got two copies of it so I can loan you a copy. I'll have a copy. And then I'll also link in the show notes. I'm pretty certain it's on YouTube. You can watch the entire documentary, but I thought it'd be really fun to watch that. I haven't watched it in a couple of years. I used to watch it every time I was depressed, which is a lot. And, <laughs> uh, and it always cheers me up. So I would love to look at that again and then talk to you about it. Ooh, that would be fun. Yeah. So 
on the horizon. We're going to do some fun stuff between the end of this big chapter and the beginning of Batman Incorporated. So stay tuned. Roman, thanks for being a part of 47. I'm glad the internet didn't totally melt uh, halfway <laughs> through like it seemed like it was going to. And uh, you get to work. And God, it's just good to see you. Thank you as always, my friend. Well, it's good to see you. This is such a blast. I'm so glad. And I'm so glad folks, Judd, Andrew, everybody's is is digging this and coming up with their stuff because that's that's exciting <laughs> sure is all right buddy uh on behalf of roman i'm jeff batman quarantine 47 we'll see you on monday have a great weekend friends